Welcome to part one of Explain Me. I'm Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. On the podcast today, we speak with Carolina Miranda at the LA Times about LACMA, Geffen Gifts, and gentrification. Welcome, Carolina Miranda, staff writer at the LA Times. Hello. Hello. How are you guys? Good. Uh, so, Carolina, maybe you can explain to our listeners, uh, you can explain us um, a little bit about what your, your role is at the LA Times. I'm an arts and culture staff writer, so I cover art, architecture, culture through a variety of profiles, Q&As, analytical pieces, uh, photo acts, and then occasionally some cut and paste poetry if I'm, I'm feeling saucy. Yes, which uh, I, I think I've drawn in the past. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by staff I'm... writer, you, you, that means you have a full-time job, right? Yeah, I actually have for the first time in a very long time in my life, I have a full-time job with benefits. So it's like oh, this that's amazing. magical thing where, I don't know, every two weeks this money appears in my account. But I also work like a dog, so... <laughs> Great. Well, we uh, we asked you to come on Explain Me to uh, talk about uh, David Geffen's uh, donation to LACMA, um, the Geffen gift of $150 million to help get Peter Zumthors. And if anyone knows how to pronounce his name. Um, it's Zumthor. It you, got, you got it just Zumthor? right. You got it just yeah. right. Yeah, it's Zumthor. So, so he's donated 150 million out of the uh, bringing them, you know, to 450 million, to the closer to the 650 million dollars they need to build this new sort of series of four buildings that will, I believe, stretch across a highway. Yeah, it's um, actually one building that is replacing a series uh, of buildings from the from the 60s, and it will stretch across Wilshire Boulevard. So it will span. It, it's a building that's going to span over a roadway. Right. And I think one thing that we just want to uh, set up for our viewers um, to get into a little bit more is that LACMA is the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And it's one of several museums in Los Angeles, including the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A., the Broad Museum and uh, the Hammer Museum. Are there any other notable museums that we should set up for our listeners before we get into the nuts and bolts of this? I, I think those are the main ones. I mean, certainly the Getty when it comes to private institutions, like that's that's one of the bigger ones. And then there are other there are other smaller uh, museums. But I, I think what makes LACMA unique is LACMA is literally the county museum and is therefore partially publicly financed by the county of Los Angeles. So it is a truly public institution. And I think worth noting, I mean, I think that's been part of the challenge of any time you do anything at LACMA is not only does it have to be approved by the board and uh, by everyone at the museum and by zoning laws and all that kind of stuff, it also has to go through the county because it is, it is a county institution. Right. And I think that also sets up one of the things like because it is, uh, you know, a public private partnership between mm -hmm. David Geffen, who's apparently worth seven point eight billion, according to Forbes. And yes. so it's a huge monetary donation. And one of the other questions that sort of came up, I think William Poundstone uh, was asking on his art blog is whether or not David Geffen intended to donate his collection to the museum or what might happen to Geffen's um, collection later on. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a big question, because last year, Geffen gave $100 million to MoMA as part of their rebuilding 
effort. And he's just given 100 or announced that he's giving 150 million to LACMA. So now there's this big question of where is the collection going to land? And is this going to be a little bit of an LA New York face off for a collection that is supposed to be have some incredible treasures of 20th century modern artwork by Jackson Pollock and Jasper Johns and, you know, the usual suspects of the New York School and beyond? Um, uh, will it be L.A. or New York? We don't oh, know so yet. that's why there's been so much in the media about the competition between L.A. and New York. I didn't really understand why this was in every single article, but basically this was kind of a competition over where the uh, collection was going to land. Exactly. Exactly. Exa- yeah, yeah that, that's, par- that's, par- that's part of it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Geffen in the, the the LA Times article, which I'm citing, not the the New York Times article, um, quoted as saying, there is no great city without a great museum. And that does beg the question, sort of, uh, what constitutes a great museum? Is it the beautifully designed Zumthor architecture, or is it the artwork that's housed in that collection? And right now, Geffen's donation is sizable, but it's not, it doesn't include art. And it doesn't include art. No. And in fact, it's it's interesting because, you know, there was, I think, you know, to rewind a little bit, there was the famous case of the massive Eli Broad donation to build BCAM, the Broad Contemporary Art Museum that is part of the LACMA campus. Um, and part of that promise was that he was going to donate the collection and then ultimately didn't and then went and built his own museum in downtown L.A. So <laughs> this, this does get into the, the kind of area that I'm sort of interested in, in talking about a little bit more is the fact that it's not just an intra-city rivalry between L.A. and New York. What you're getting into now is the relationship between Eli Broad, who's another major philanthropist who built his own private museum that's you know free and open to the public, uh, but it houses the Broad Foundation art collection, mm-hmm. um, and that he has maybe some particular beef with Michael Govan, who is the director at LACMA. Mm-hmm. Um, Broad had a lot of conditions for you know his contribution to uh, BCAM at LACMA, which you know BCAM is its own separate building on the LACMA campus. Mm-hmm. It, from what I understand, has you know sort of like its own staff. And none of the artwork is part of LACMA's permanent collection. It's all sort of temporarily on loan from the Broad Foundation. And Broad- well, that that has evolved. Just so you know, that that okay. arrangement has evolved over time, and that BCAM is now pretty much fully integrated into the museum. And there is a floor of that building that still shows a work from uh, Broad's collection, but the other two floors at BCAM are used for rotating LACMA exhibitions. So actually right now there's a couple of Pacific Standard Time related shows inside BCAM. Um, so that that relationship has changed over time and it is a separate building, but also worth noting LACMA is a campus of a series of individual mm-hmm. buildings. It's kind of this like outdoor village uh, setup that was a play on, on a lot of architecture that was happening in the mid-1960s when it was built. Right. And so what I understand what you're saying, though, is LACMA is able to put more of their collection or programming into BCAM now, and that there's actually less of, like, Eli Broad, Eli and Edith uh, Broad's artwork, yes. you know, housed in the museum. So, I mean, I do think that's an interesting thing when part of the tension originally was the fact that uh, I think Govan believed that he was going to get permanent some donations of art to the permanent collection for LACMA, which well, I guess everyone believed seem to be that. The case. 
everyone believed that that Eli, I mean, it had been announced that as part of the deal of building BCAM that Eli would be donating his collection. But then he changed his mind and he decided, you know, and it has it has something to do with a condition a lot of collectors like to put on their things is how often will they be shown? Will the collection be shown together? Will it inhabit like a separate building? I mean, we're looking at it with the Fisher collection at, at SF MoMA in San Francisco. You know, there were a lot of conditions about the donation of that new wing to SF MoMA. And part of it is that that wing has to show something like 80% of the Fisher collection at all times that they yeah. can curate it, they can move it around. And so I think what, what, what had been happening at LACMA was that Broad wanted a place where his art could be seen on a regular basis at all times. And I, I don't know that LACMA was willing to give him that. I don't know exactly what caused the rupture, but he ended up withdrawing that offer and then going and building his own museum across across town. Yeah, and that's something I hope we can talk a, a little bit more about too, because I thought of you wanting to get you on the show to talk a little bit about this, because you also are experiencing the museum scene in LA. And so there's the Broad, which has hosted thousands of visitors at this point, or hundreds of thousands uh, since opening in like 2015. And, you know, Mocha, which is just down the street, apparently, I've heard it described as kind of like a ghost town right now. And that Eli Broad was also involved at MoCA with financing yes. and bringing in, seemed to be instrumental in bringing in Jeffrey Deitch to MoCA. Yes. And he had a sort of disastrous, maybe three-year tenure out of five that he was supposed yeah. to do. Or, yeah, um, uh, Eli, Eli was a big uh, donor to MoCA. He has been a big donor to the Museum of Contemporary Art since it first launched in the 1980s. And then he became really involved after they, you know, almost went bankrupt in 2008, I believe was when the news first emerged that they had pretty much spent down their endowment. And so then Eli became really involved in the museum, made a huge donation and was key to getting Jeffrey Deitch installed as director, which I think as we can all agree, was a pretty disastrous period curatorially for the museum. Uh, Key staff, such as the chief curator, Paul Schimmel, left. And Eli is still involved, but I think these days he's more distracted by his own museum. (laughs) <laughs> which seems to be drawing lots of uh, attention and uh, large crowds, you know, yes. and showing sort of, let's say, spectacular uh, works that, that people love to take selfies in, like Kusama's Infinity Room, where I've heard that, you know, over at MoCA, there are no lines, there's more curatorial control, they're doing scholarly exhibitions mm-hmm. that nobody's going to. Do you get a sense that there's some intramural competition between the museums in LA, or is it really... I think like the Pacific Standard Time sounds like a wonderful thing. You know, there's a lot of shows by uh, non-Western artists and and it seems to be generating a lot of like great critical attention. I mean, I, th- I think I think it's a little bit of both. The museums here collaborate in ways that museums in New York just do not. I don't I personally don't think you would have a Pacific Standard Time in New York simply because can you just even imagine the Met and MoMA setting their egos aside for a little bit to like work The New York biennial that spread across the Whitney and MoMA. No, I can't imagine that at all. Exactly, exactly. Like it would just never, it would never happen. Those institutions are so built around their own identities that the idea of like pitching in to help each other and co-host shows or even things like, I mean, part of what you see here in LA is like when the Broad was opening, all the PR staffs from all the other museums kind of pitched in to help them on their opening event. Like you would never see that in New York. So, 
there is a higher level of collaboration and coordination. And I think part of it has to do with LA's youngness, the youngness of some of its institutions. I also think it has to do with the sprawling nature of our city that being less centralized, if this city wants to kind of have a cogent art scene, the institutions have to work together. That doesn't mean there's not competition. You know, when MoCA almost went broke, LACMA was stepping in saying, hey, we can be your financial savior and take you <laughs> over, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and there were some with MoCA that said, hey, no way, we're MoCA, we're not LACMA, you know, we don't want to hook up with you. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, thank you, dude, but no thanks, you know, we'll take our budgetary problems elsewhere. That does happen. And, and then I think with Broad, there is a little bit of there is a little bit of this rivalry with Mocha because Mo, Mocha and the Broad are literally across the street from yeah. each other, and and the Broad is the shiny new toy in town, and it's in its very iconic cheese grater building, and the art is totally selfie indulgent. Like if you want a selfie, that's the museum to go to, and there's this feeling of like newness and interest, and, and I also think the art. A lot of it is shiny and easy. Right now, like, you know, you can go to the Broad and you can see, like, Jeff Koon's tulips as soon as you come up the stairs. And exactly. there's something, like, pretty and enticing. And then you cross the street and go to Mocha, and it's a Brazilian conceptualist who, like, made art under the dictatorship. I mean, it's just very, <laughs> <laughs> like, different, different shows. I, I would not describe Mocha as a ghost town uh, by any means. I have not seen their attendance figures, so I don't know what attendance at the museum is. Mocha is also split out over several uh, locations, which I think kind of diffuses their audience a little bit, too, because they have the museum on Grand Avenue. There's another space in Little Tokyo, which is called the Geffen, which actually Geffen funded back in the day in the 1980s. And and there's a space at the uh, Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood, a smaller space where they do more like project type exhibitions. So... You know, I think Mocha doesn't have that, like, new car smell to it, which is probably why the Broad is super popular right now. I also think that the Broad, to its credit, how whatever I may think of their art and the installation of it, <laughs> which is I'm not a fan of, um, their programming has been really good. Uh, the, director, the director of programs there is Ed Petuto. He's a guy who came from New York, and he has just put on a phenomenal series of performances, music, uh, performance art, poetry, like just really making that a dynamic space that you want to be at. You know, Karen Finley has performed there. Ron Athey curated a performance series. Like, can you, I mean, Ron Athey and Eli Broad in the same sentence is kind of like an anathema to, to each other. But it's like, it's happening there. So they have created this scene there whereas mocha still feels a little sleepy on the public the public programming side yeah and i think that you know uh, patty and i were talking about this earlier just like so what is at stake with the geffen donation why why is this such an important issue besides the kind of intra-city tug of war and i mean just my my feeling about it has a little bit to do with that sense of the identity of the city geffen saying that it's there's no great city without a great museum with a great man's name on it to some degree and that notion that like the broad is this kind of 
it's not a new model, it's an old model. It's a private philanthropist starting a museum that has their private collection, whereas LACMA still has that sense that it is a public institution. It's the yes. county's museum. It's The public has a sense of ownership um, within it. Yeah. And, and yet it's you just described the road as being amazing for yeah. part of what it's doing. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that said, LACMA's public programming has, has been very strong for a long time now. I think I think the, the building campaign at LACMA gets at a couple of issues. Is one, the original campus and the preservationists here in L.A. are going to hate me for saying this, but the original buildings built by William Pereira in the 1960s are just terrible places to see art. And I think the museum has always been hampered by them. It's kind of like entering uh, Bloomingdale circa 1965. You know, you're mm. like, oh, we've got, you know, German expressionism on two and ladies intimates, you know, on four. <laughs> like, that's, it's that's, consumerist <laughs> brutalism. Yeah, it's, that's what it feels like when you oh. enter, say, the Amundsen building. You literally feel like, all right, I'm going to see some painting and then I'm going to buy a bra. Like, it's just like, the that's the architectural vibe the buildings give off. And it, I mean, it, William Pereira was this corporate architect who built a lot of a lot of malls and, and department stores. So it kind of makes sense. So the, the buildings don't work. They're leaky. They would need massive retrograde retrofits in order to make them more functional as a museum. Also, a 1980s edition by Hardy Holzer Fifeman, which faces a disastrous 1980s edition, may I add, uh, on that faces Wilshire Boulevard, kind of has blocked the museum off the street. It's this kind of carceral pomo, <laughs> just kind of mm. has built this wall on, 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 on Wilshire. And and I think as a campus, it, it feels like not only are those spaces not a good place to see art, it's like it was just not this very welcoming architecture to the city. Like it didn't like like you said, if, if you want to build a great institution for the city, you want to build something that feels welcoming. And when you walk up to LACMA, it does not feel um, that Hardy Holtzman Pfeiffer building does not. It's like you're entering a, a bank vault. Is, yeah. And that, that, that also like. speaks to kind of the direction that museums may be going in because there's a lot of talk of museums shifting from being collecting institutions that uh, are all about the objects and a patron's collection versus becoming sites for experience for the public. And so that does speak to that kind of like amazing programming that, you know, you're seeing at the Broad. Um, And, you know, I guess the other side, we were sort of thinking about why, why is this so important? Because we're able to kind of see museums being created in the present, not just these kind of like stodgy institutions that have mm-hmm. seemed to have always existed. We're seeing people, very wealthy individuals, put their stamps on a city through the addition of these cultural institutions. And we're sort of talking about like, you know, how, how do artists get their artwork into these museum collections? And the, the Geffen collection kind of reveals that like he collected works that he felt very passionate about. It's described as being like one of the greatest post-war art collections, even though it's very small, mm-hmm. like 44 major works or something. But where he decides to house that collection is going to have a lot to do with establishing or cementing the reputation and identity of that not only the city, but the museum, and then also the artists um, who are, you know, represented in that collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it will be, I mean, for, for a LACMA, it would be, it would help them fill out pieces of their collection in which they are weaker. That it would, it would give them a strong 20th century story to tell 
um, in terms of those key works from the New York School of that era. Right. And Patty, uh, I know you had some concerns that... Uh... Well, I mean, most of my concerns are based in ignorance, honestly. Like, <laughs> I don't know very much about this at all. Uh, it just seems like LACMA already has a shit ton of space. Okay, and I'm having a hard time, quite honestly, like wrapping my head around how much space the new uh, Capital came campaign project and architectural building will give it and it's like actually, why it needs I mean, that much. What, what's interesting is that the new building is not going to add an overwhelming amount of gallery space. The new building is probably, I think it's going to, If forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it's going to add something between twenty and 40,000 square feet of additional gallery space, which for a project of this size and expense is not a lot. What the building is doing is solving the problem of the buildings that exist, which are old. Like these would... It would be replacing buildings, not adding. And mm-hmm. so uh, what it would do is essentially kind of like, okay, let's start from scratch. This cluster of three buildings by Pereira and the addition by a Hardy Holtzman Pfeiffer don't really work for various reasons of showing art and urbanism. Like, let's get rid of this and replace it with something new. And then at the same time, and one of the ideas behind this is – that part of what Govan wants to do is to install the museum in a different way than museums are generally installed. So when you think of how permanent collections at museums usually work, you know, you go to the Met, you've got your European painting, everything grows from European painting in that story of art. I think what, what Govan wants to do is he wants to mix up that narrative a little bit. And part of it, I think, has to do with perhaps historic weaknesses in LACMA's collection. And part of it, I think, has to do with L.A.'s position geographically in the world. Like, does it make sense for the story of art in L.A. to begin with with European painting? Should it Not begin at all. with something else? <laughs> Should it begin with pre-Columbian art? Should it Absolutely. begin with something Asian? Should it begin with something else entirely? And so part of what he wants to do with the new building is create something in which sections can be installed and the, and the collection can be mixed up a little bit. And the idea is to have multiple entrances to the museum so that you never begin with the same story of art. You're always beginning in a different place. Like Oh, that's like a, you know, that seems really kind of smart. Yeah, which is, is kind of interesting. And so the idea is that maybe you could install a whole series of galleries for a whatever year period based on portraiture or something like that. And you would then take portraiture across cultures and across geographies with works from the permanent collection that tell a story of portraiture, not just in European painting, but in pre-Columbian ceramics, in Asian tapestries, in whatever, and, and tell that story together as a synthetic thing and not separately siloed into these you know, curatorial art departments. Not to use an overused word, but to use an overused word. Like it seems (laughs) kind of networked in a way, right? Like Mm -hmm. so that everything is, looks connected, which is the way it actually is anyway. So it sounds like a good way of telling a story. It's it's much less linear. It's much less linear. And I think it, in in an interesting way, it gets at the psychology of Los Angeles, which is this spread out space in which points do not connect to the center, points connect to one another. And and I think the idea with, with showing the collection in this way 
would be to allow those kinds of points to be made that you could be in a show in a permanent collection show that goes from like the museum has a lot of holdings say from Iran so that you you know you could be in Iranian art one moment and pre-Columbian the next and you know early 20th century Mexican painting and and so on and so forth you know it's like a little bit of a of a flattening it's interesting because Christopher Knight who is the critic here at the LA Times I think he's intrigued by the idea, but he's also concerned by it because he says part of what the traditional way of installing permanent collections has done is it has allowed visitors to museums to kind of know where things are. Like, you know, the, the household Like a goods. grocery store, right? Yeah, exactly. You got your produce here, your frozen foods there, you know where to go. And as a result, like, you know where that those Velazquez paintings are at the Met. You know where the Raphael is. Like, you just know where things are, and you can kind of go and become acquainted and reacquainted with these works over a period of time because they don't really budge. The formula that Michael's talking about for LACMA is going gonna, is gonna to be more fluid and it's going to move things around. And part of what Christopher says is it's going to require people to, to sort of love the institution before they love the art. Yeah, but um, I would push back against that. I mean, my, my feeling is that, you know, we've, maybe we've had enough of this kind of disciplinary or categorical thinking that does create those hierarchies um, that, you know, like you kind of describe European painting as being the sort of source root for all of these other kind of categories of art that are subordinated, you know, to, mm -hmm. to that narrative. And I really appreciate exactly. the idea that Govan's trying to change that narrative and that, you know, he has the autonomy and the freedom to do that, to establish a, a kind of multitude of ways of reading um, the development of like art history and cultural history and traditions, which is a really beautiful thing um, as opposed to just like where my alarm bells go off is, you know, like just hearing like one person's vision of what art is or one person's vision of, you know, what gets to even be qualified as art uh, by I being think, put into the institution. Exactly. I think it's possible for both positions to be to be right at the same time. Because Christopher Knight's opinion, um, honestly, I know as articulated by Carolina Miranda just now, does it like, make sense to me. When I go to a museum, there are certain pieces I want to be able to find, and I don't think that that's unusual for people. But by the same token, you want to make sure that discovery is still possible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you know things too well and you're following a map, that just doesn't happen. And you need to find ways to make sure that people take the side roads. Yeah. You know, and I think that. and I think what happens, like, for example, LACMA has these interesting collections of Persian art, of Asian art, of Korean art, of pre-Columbian ceramics. And the way the current architecture is established, you know, you have your bigger, uh, princelier galleries downstairs in the in the lower levels of, of these buildings. And that's where the quote unquote important, aka European art is. And then to find all of this other art, which is really interesting, you have to climb and then and people don't. They, they, they hit the hits and then, and then they're out. And so, yeah, I think what he wants to do is create a little bit more happy accident and then show how things were occurring simultaneously because part of the problem with the linear story of art is that it's like, oh, the Europeans were the only ones who were painting. Well, they were not. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Even within modernism, you know, I was able to spend some time in Mexico City and see a couple of great shows of modern art, you know, happening in Latin America during the 50s and 60s into the 70s. And it's it's a great history that really adds to uh, the kind of story of modernism, which if you 
uh, kind of follow the New York model, it was like 10 people made it all happen. Exactly. At least abstract expressionism, right? But it's, it's a much larger um, global kind of phenomenon. So anything that kind of expands that story, I think, is a, a net plus. And yeah. I guess I just sort of want to get your, uh, your opinion on it. I mean, do you, do you think it's a, a, like a net good that Geffen's made the donation and that LACMA reaches the $650 million goal to kind of transform the institution? I, I think, you know, I'm a little ambivalent. I am all, I'm for transforming the institution. I'm for experimenting with new ways of telling a story about the collection. I think part of what has been problematic about the process that Govan has run over at LACMA has been that, you know, it hasn't been a terribly democratic one. That usually these types of decisions of an architect uh, for a major museum are done through competition, you know, by inviting people to submit a plan. The public has an opportunity to review those plans. There's, there, there is some sense of consensus about what will work and not work for a particular community. The, the, the process that Govan has undertaken with Zumthor has been an, another one entirely. You know, there was no competition. It was announced that Zumthor is the one who was going to be doing this. And they announced it early on in the process as Zumthor was still kind of like working out his ideas on stuff. So I think it's been a little confusing to people like, okay, well, where are we at on the design and what does this mean? And how much of a voice will, say, the museum's curators or the public or the neighborhood have in the creation of what is essentially a public institution. And, and that, that's a really interesting point to be sort of ambivalent about, because do you think, was there any public input whatsoever into the Broad? He did have a competition, so okay. there was, architects were invited, but I think the Broad he, is also a private museum. Yeah, exactly, I mean, granted, exactly. he's getting like Boku tax credits for, mm. for being there, but, you know, like the public is still supporting it in and, a and way. I, and I, I bring that up, too, to make the point that like when um, Broad was, you know, pushing uh, for BCAM, I think he had a lot of say into changing the architect to like Rem Coolhouse or something. A lot of his demands were sort of uh, met by Govan and, and yeah. LACMA to kind of make the thing happen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I really think there was an architectural switch that happened. So, uh, you know, it is, it is curious then that Govan would sort of like revisit that same trauma on the public. We're yeah. just, I'm just pushing this through because I don't want to have any debate about this. And I, I have no well, idea. Well, I'd, I'd be really curious to find out what the rationale was for not holding a public competition because if the Broad had a competition and the Broad is a private foundation, they can do whatever the hell they want. Like, mm -hmm. it suggests to me that the process of having multiple submissions is a good one because you mm -hmm. have multiple perspectives and you get to choose the one that works best for you. Interestingly, there had been a few years before uh, Govan undertook this plan with Zumthor, there had been a competition at one point to rebuild the museum. It may have been under Govan's predecessor, Andrea Rich, and there were a number of plans submitted, among them one by Rem Coolhouse that consisted of raising the entire campus and building this like crazy tent structure and and so on and so forth. And then And then the economy cratered and that like, they didn't even get to the point of choosing an architect, I don't think. And that died. And then I think when Govan retook it up, when, when things got better and they were thinking about rebuilding again, 
Govan says he had been to some of Zumthor's spaces in Europe, the Kunsthaus uh, Bergens, which is one of the museums that the Swiss architect has done. And he was really struck by it, by the way in which it showcases art, how it does away with the drywall thing, um, how it uses natural material, that it's it's been widely hailed as an architectural masterpiece. And, and Zumthor doesn't do competitions. Zumthor does not enter. It's like you kind of hire him or you hire him and that's it. And oh, so I didn't that, know that. Kinda, so I, that I, is I actually reason. appreciate that position because he's not doing <laughs> exactly. all this kind of work for free because he has one of six major architecture firms. Yeah, um, he's not. He's known as a little bit of a hermit. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. crank the stuff out. And so that was the rationale for doing that. Now, is that an appropriate method for what is ostensibly a public museum? You know, we could probably debate that till the cows. Uh, well, I do come think home. it's. A, but it's I am intrigued. I consider yes. consider me architecturally okay. intrigued. Want to apply for affordable housing but don't know where to begin? Join Howlard's INC for a free affordable housing seminar led by the experts at the Actors Fund. Get organized and be prepared to take advantage of opportunities to apply. The seminar will take place at the Howl Happening Gallery space at 6 East 1st Street, New York City on October 17th, 2 p.m. Cultural workers and artists from all disciplines are welcome. RSVP is requested, but walk-ins are totally fine too. RSVP at howlarts.org. 20 by 200 offers a curated selection of limited edition art prints and photography from emerging, established, and legendary artists like myself, William Pauheide. That's why we buy from 20 by 200. We believe that everyone can and should collect art and that artists should have more opportunities to make a living making their work. To learn more about us and browse our collection of art and photography, visit us at 20by200.com. It's a great place to buy art. I would, uh, I would agree, and I have a print available. At support William Pohida. Yeah, support williampohida.com. Yes. <laughs> that too. I think one thing we can switch gears, um, and and maybe this is an interesting intersection, this kind of question of public and private, um, is is you know, what was sort of happening over in Boyle Heights. Well, really the the sort of conflict between uh, the local community in Boyle Heights and artist run spaces, galleries which uh, we just were talking about the fact that 365 Mission canceled a uh, reading recently because it was protested by the, the Boyle Heights activists. Yeah, um, that they were, do you want they to talk a little bit were, about that? They or? said they were going to protest it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, this is part of such a huge problem in Los Angeles right now because there is a raging housing crisis going Mm -hmm. on. Uh, This is a city that has been flat and has remained flat for a very long time and we're now paying the price. And in combination, and and it's just to put it in context, it's like Mm -hmm. the county has something like 60,000 homeless living on the streets. Uh, Working class people all over the city are being uh, displaced and, and the poor are being displaced. The story you have in Boyle Heights is Downtown Los Angeles for a long time was uh, pretty fallow in terms of building. It was pretty. It was a dead zone for much of the 70s and 80s, and the new millennium has seen it come back to life. And there's been a lot of development, and some of that, and part of that has been in the arts district. A lot of condo activity and boutiques and shops and all that stuff that you see on and anything that has the name arts in it. <laughs> and part of that development has spilled over into Boyle Heights. And so Boyle Heights is comprised of two different 
zones. It's a small neighborhood sandwiched between freeways on one side of the LA River and one edge of it, the edge of it that faces downtown Los Angeles is a former industrial zone. And so there is a landowner, prominent landowner in the area named Vera Campbell, who has bought a lot of those properties and turned them into artist studios or rented them out for gallery spaces or uh, use them for other other sort of cultural issues. There are other landowners there as well who have done that as well. And, and as a result, that is creating gentrification issues in Boyle Heights, in the residential part of Boyle Heights. So you can almost compare it to the industrial part of Bushwick versus the residential part of Bushwick. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a similar urbanism. There's two components to the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people in New York, obviously, have similar feelings and similar experiences with the housing crunch, the housing crisis. You know, there's a lot of areas, whether it's Bed-Stuy or even Chinatown, where galleries are pushing out of areas that were like the East Village or Chelsea or Soho that were sort of known artist communities or gallery areas into areas that haven't had galleries. And a lot of the tensions that that are occurring in Boyle Heights are also happening uh, in New York. And exactly. I think w- the, the thing that might be new, the sense that, you know, artists... Uh, we may see ourselves as very liberal, holding very progressive views, but the very fact that you know we're participating or opening galleries in, in neighborhoods like Boyle Heights or pushing into Chinatown, we're not necessarily seen as, as allies or that what we're doing we see as a cultural good. Um, that sentiment may not be shared by the no. community, which is facing no. <laughs> real material pressures like being homeless. Exactly. Uh, these things run into direct conflict. And I do think that the art world feels very threatened. They're yes. like, hey, look, we're doing good things. Yeah. We're a transgender run gallery. We have progressive politics. Why are you upset with us? You should be yeah. mad at that realtor who like converted the spaces or you should yeah. be mad. Or the at, city you know, council for not building more housing. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a really, in Boyle Heights, I really feel is where we have seen a lot of vitriol directed at art and artists. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is there's always that saying of like, oh, the artists go in and then everyone else goes in after them and then the neighborhood transforms. Like it's this kind of conventional wisdom that this is what happens to a neighborhood, that after the artists arrive, then other people start to come in. And so I think, you know, residents in Boyle Heights are eyeing that really warily. And I I think it's worth pointing out that Artists have lived in Boyle Heights for a very long time, both Mexican-American artists who are from the neighborhood, as well as artists who lived and worked in some of the industrial sites for decades. Like, that has been there. What has changed is the arrival of blue-chip galleries and, and mom-and-pop galleries. I mean, part of what you've seen in Boyle Heights is, a, is the development of a scene of all types of galleries, this more institutional presence. So it's not just the artist in his loft painting and making wacky sculptures. And it's isn't there Michelle a, a... Macaron coming in, opening a gallery, and then giving an interview to the New York Times where she talks about how dangerous the neighborhood feels. <laughs> 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 and that got a lot of people really, really pissed off. And I think... Even though there are urban studies that show that art is less a cause of gentrification than it is a mirror of gentrification, people who live in Boyle Heights don't care. Like, they just don't want it. And and for them, whether it's the mirror or the cause, it's going to push them out of the homes that they know in a part of the city that has a long activist tradition. 
because Boyle Heights has been the heart of Chicano activism, Mexican-American activism. Like, it has been such an important site of, of so much of that that I think what's happening is you have institutional art world connecting with this long-running activist culture. And do you think they're right for not caring? Some of what the protesters has done has been very sort of personally targeted in ways that I'm not comfortable with, that I'm, I'm all for protesting, but, you know, personal attacks on people are just not, are not something I find very tasteful, to put it delicately. That said, I think for them, for the activists, it's a way of drawing attention that they simply wouldn't get otherwise. They, they would, you know, we would not be sitting here talking, be talking about them if they were doing their protests on the steps of City Hall. And I think the root of what they're saying is really important, which is that the city is developing, the city is building, but is the city building for the poor, for the working class? And for the people who have lived in neighborhoods that have been neglected by the city for a very long time, and now all of the city, all of a sudden the city's interested in it, but not for the, not necessarily for the people that live there. Do you see what I mean? I, so, so yeah, I no, I see, I see exactly what you mean. I guess I'm just wondering, like, to what extent the strategy is going to be effective? Because I am outside of this situation, except of course that I'm not because I live in New York, and there's sort of there's obviously similar things happening here. But if they hit 365 mission pretty hard, and there's like money behind that organization, is that helpful in terms of you know, potentially getting the city to do things differently? Because it seems like that's sort of the end goal, right? Is yeah. like, how do we get the city to do things differently and, uh, you know, tip the scales a little exactly. bit? And exactly. Targeting, and targeting galleries is a very effective way to do it because it draws a lot of attention. I think, you know, it's, it's mixed. I think, I think it's been an effective strategy until now in, in terms of drawing attention to what's happening in Boyle Heights and what's happening to working people. Whether it's a strategy that will work long-term, can't say. There was an arts nonprofit that actually shut its doors as a result of yeah, some pissed. of the, pissed. yeah, the PSSST mm-hmm. shut their doors. They were a nonprofit and there had been, I mean, there was allegations of a lot of personal harassment that went on uh, with it as well. Yeah, weren't they, some of the protesters, the activists had gone to the same graduate program with some of yeah, the Yeah, there was the some artists. CalArts drama going, yeah. going on there and there was like some vindictive stuff being said and it got really ugly. The The thing is that, you know, a lot of the protesters hailed the shutting down of PSST as like, we've won. But the fact <laughs> is, it's it's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory because, okay, you got a gallery to shut down and maybe you'll get other galleries to shut down. Or maybe you'll get other galleries to not renew their leases because they don't want to be in a neighborhood where they can't have an opening without protesters. So it might work in that short term. But in the long term, you know, that... Those land, you know, the landowner who owns that land that PSST was on still owns that land. And they're going to rent it to somebody, you know. And they're going to rent it to somebody. And what you're seeing in some of those buildings, for example, is like the building where Cimento Gallery is located, which is a, a building with multiple units inside of it. 
you know, there's like an architect's office, there's a design office. These are these are renters who don't have public functions. So if they work in Boyle Heights, it's no it's it's no big deal. It's not like a gallery that's having openings and a gallery is kind of a public space that people go in mm-hmm. and out of all day. So the 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 people who own the buildings just might rent them to other people that simply don't have a public function. So it doesn't take care the protesting does not take care of the larger problem of can some of this land in the industrial area serve the people who live there? The core when, problem still remains. Yeah, but I mean, I guess from the activist perspective, because I am sympathetic with um, the activist community and what they're trying to push back against, right? Like, I think Patty and I talked about this, that, you know, the gallery is a low-hanging fruit. It's there. The people might have good intentions, but there's somebody that you can you can physically go to the space. It, it is publicly accessible, and it's tied to this much larger thing, right? Like, we just had this long discussion about the importance of LACMA, the importance of where the, the money's coming from a private source. It's not necessarily public funding. There's a lot of tensions around it, but it's it's tied to the identity of the city. Art, mm-hmm. you know, having this cultural institution makes LA potentially a a world class city, right? And that it's it's competing with New York really for the title of the art capital of not just the United States but the world. Mm-hmm. And so you have this thing that has incredible cultural value that makes it more than just. It's not just about art. You know, or it's not just about the the space and that community. It's about the kind of outsized cultural weight that art has. And then a lot of these galleries don't, the artists don't look like the people from the community. They're not. um, And the art itself may have no interest to, to, you know, not just the good people of Boyle Heights, but like a lot of Americans, you know, or like what is contemporary art? It's not like it's something that's super accessible in and of itself. So it does make me appreciate Govan's move to try to like, open and create multiple entry points to an understanding of what art is and not that it's something you have to conform to and completely understand the correct history of, of this. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. That if you don't have an understanding of 1970s conceptual art, you know, you, you won't got, get your Right. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think what's, what's, what's worth pointing out here too, and what part of what has happened with the description of this sort of like art versus activist debate is that art has also been painted with this, that yes, the art world is tied to all of the systems of capital and collecting and stuff like that, that cause generate all kinds of other problems in other sectors of society, but that not all art is created equal either. That this idea that in Boyle Heights, you have small, more mom and pop galleries that you know, they're kind of living month to month. They sell work by emerging artists. They're not going to Art Basel. They're not trotting off to Hong Kong. Like, they're part of a of a lower entry-level portion of the art world. So it's I'm not... I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and so I, I also <laughs> feel as if it's become this binary of blue-chip galleries versus... Mexican-American neighborhood activists. And it's not, you know, not all art, first of all, not all the activists are the same and not all of the art is the same. That, And, and part of what happens is, and I think, you know, this is sometimes the art world's own fault because what what do you read when you read about art? You read about auctions and you hear about how something cost $100 million and you hear about how some donor gave $100 million to a museum and it's all these like massive amounts of money that are floating around and it's parties and it's this and it's that and all of that sticks, I think, to every level of the art world, whether it is that or not. Do, well, do you know and I, I mean? think that it that comes to I, be perceived as that. 
Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I think that perception is really strong, particularly as it applies to museums and performance institutions and things like that, because I think that traditionally the development model has been art is a barnacle on a larger development ship. So you could mm-hmm. sort of see the down the development of downtown Brooklyn, for example, as something that was developing and then alongside that BAM's expansion happens and BAM's expansion happens by capitalizing on the development opportunities that are already there. So I've heard the success of not only BAM, but the development of downtown itself attributed to Karen Brooks Hopkins, who's Mm -hmm. the, the former president of BAM, which then like when things like that happens, you really start to believe that museums have a lot more sway than... Exactly. And you start, you know, I mean, art has this dual thing of, uh, we could talk about creative placemaking, where, you know, if you put some art on it, you can heal the broken community. On the other hand, you could, you know, you put some art on it, you you could destroy a community. And, you know, I think the, the thing that I think is really and I, important. And I think, you know, and I think also just to add to what you were saying just now, William, that also that this is an art world that has been very exclusion. The art world in general, when we speak very vaguely about it, has just been very exclusionary of the Chicano experience in the United States that, you know, I think LACMA didn't Absolutely. have a Chicano mm-hmm. art show until the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the whole story of Osco is this story of a group of artists being ex- excluded for who they were and the ideas that they represented. And so that when the art world comes barging in and says, oh, kumbaya, you guys, art is awesome. Like the locals are also just kind of not having that either because they know, you know, they're very aware of how they yeah. And, and in that's, terms of you, representation within the art world. It's it's really important because one of the other things Patty and I are going to talk about is Omer Fast's show in Chinatown, Lower East Side, essentially, where he's, he's an artist who lives in Berlin. He's part of kind of like I would say the global international art world that doesn't really have a place. You mm-hmm. know, it's sort of rootless and placeless. And then we're talking about hyper local politics in like Boyle Heights, in, um, you know, Bed-Stuy, in, in Chinatown, where there are, you know, local politics matter to the people and in comes yes. art which is like european white art it's it's not welcome on a number of levels not just the the kind of uh you know the the questions of real estate and gentrification that get brought up but i think the troubling thing to some degree is that when the boyle heights activists are successful in getting a gallery to close no matter what the complexities are the simplified version of that story gets across, you know, to New York and people hear the activists were successful in shutting a gallery down. And if that works and it disrupts the kind of um, the way in which the process of gentrification works, even if it's short term, a fearic victory, if people hear it works, then they might want to try it and escalate the way in which they publicly shame artists for participating in galleries or, you know, whatever tactics work. you know, then that sets up an oppositional relationship between artists who in most cases are also working poor, don't have a lot of money, um, are facing the same, you know, housing crises as their, their, the local residents. And so that's where it's like, it's painful um, to see the kind of divisions where there really needs to be lots of solidarity. But the art can't 
doesn't get a pass just because it's art. I mean, like Patty typed up a lot of lovely notes about 365 mission, which it seems very clear that they updated their about page to kind of like just say what a great thing they are, you know, a nonprofit Mm -hmm. that Gavin Brown doesn't own it. It's not about ownership. They're renting and they're really trying to paint like a great picture of it as a community center. Mm -hmm. And I I I could be totally wrong, but when I went uh, in like 2015 in LA, I just remember it was like a football field size space with giant paintings on the walls. And I thought, well, that's not really... um, no, well, and a it's community serving, center. And it's just to be, art world types. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the just to the, be sorry, just to be clear, like the notes that I typed up were from this really weird Bloomberg article in 2015. Mm-hmm. So they didn't come from the about page. Um, and the article led with 365 mission being something that was a collaboration between the quote unquote very powerful dealer, Gavin Brown, and ended by noting that it was backed by one of the most powerful dealers in the world. So like this was... And That's so Bloomberg. In, that is so Bloomberg. Right. And in between, there was all this stuff about how the mission was like super warm and informal and you could get tea and coffee and that it was like wholly unlike any other gallery experience. And having never been there myself, I thought, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. But it also sounded like all it needed was a startup ping pong table. And, you know, it would <laughs> yeah. be it would be done. So I, maybe you could tell me a little bit more about like what that space is like so that I, mean, I have it's 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 three three fifty six mission is super duper art world uh you know they and and it's informal in some ways in the sense that it's a it's a very raw warehouse uh used for display <laughs> like that that has a bookstore that sells art book thingies that are probably more expensive than most working class people could ever afford and they have performances and opening nights and so on and so forth but it's very art worldy like you're not gonna find I'm, I'm not gonna say that their audience isn't mixed because that's not the case. I mean, I think there's enough integration happening in in certain things so that it's not like it's an all white audience, but it's not the neighborhood that's going to 356 Mission. Let's be clear. It's not the Boyle Heights neighborhood. That's that's not who this is for. This is Laura Brown and Laura Owens and friends, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah yeah and back so yeah and they've done i've seen some some cool stuff there and i've seen some weird stuff and i've seen other stuff where i'm like what is this (laughs) and just to you know put it into context from my my memory of of being on the street where it is is on the the industrial side it's not residential but you have is venus over la still there Uh, yeah adam Adam lindeman who's like a plutocrat yeah, it's down. That's down the street. All of the galleries are located in the industrial area. They're not in the in the residential. Right. Area. And but you know, you're we're we're it's surrounded by there may be the mixed use spaces. I went to some of the smaller spaces mm-hmm. in um, you know, the kind of larger areas with studios and galleries in them. That really reminded me of like Williamsburg or you know, some a smaller alternative art scene, right? But on that same strip you do have like the the collection of Adam Lindemann, who's you know yeah. a plutocrat billionaire, and the galleries are all gigantic. They all share sort of in common that like 
they're huge spaces and the artworks were well, gigantic. Well, some of them are a little <laughs> smaller. Like Cemento is smaller, Mars is smaller. Like they're not all giant. The in the, yeah, in the, in the mixed big. use buildings. Yeah, but then you also have like, for example, you have Mihai Nikodim who, God bless him, does these like weird shows and mm-hmm. he's Romanian and it's not like he's not part of some like blue chip gallery brand. And then there's like Cemento, the the Cemento gallery space. That's also like a small local art space. So it's mixed. But yeah, there are these massive, the Michelle Macaron space is huge Mm -hmm. too, because those buildings are huge too. (laughs) Right. So Carolina, I do think we need to wrap up, but before we did, I I wanted to uh, get a sense from you if there's like any kind of articles that you've written recently that our listeners should check out. Or anybody from the LA Times who we should be uh, looking at regularly? Well, in terms of checking out regular, she's not at the LA Times, but she's someone I read a lot for LA stuff. It's Catherine Wagley, who actually contributes to art news now occasionally. And she just did, I mean, speaking of this whole art and real estate thing, she just did a big story for Momus about the uh, Mark Bradford project in Lamert Park. And what that represents, like Bradford's uh, nonprofit and his LLC, like now own a number of buildings in an area that is potentially going to be gentrified. Even though Bradford had lived and worked, had worked in the neighborhood, excuse me, what does it mean when he like becomes a primary real estate investor? And what does that mean about the relationship between art and real estate? So she's definitely one person, uh, you know, who's covering these issues as well in a smart way that... I would read. Yeah. And we also, uh, we are interested in talking about art. So, you know, we were wondering if there were any shows that you would uh, quickly recommend um, that are up in LA right now. I know you have Pacific Standard Time, I think is still going on. Yeah, no, it's majorly going on. In fact, I'm I'm only like 60 shows behind. It's insane. Uh, (laughs) Incredible shows. Probably top of the list right now is Radical Women at the Hammer, which is a look at avant-garde women artists of the 60s, 70s, and 80s from uh, Latin America and Latinas from the U.S., and the ways in which they worked with the bodies, with with the body, and either as canvas or subject, and just really resurfacing these stories of women artists that often get buried in the history books because they are women or because the places that they made their work in happened to be dictatorships at the time and weren't really a conducive place to be showing or displaying work. So that show is just, you know, I'd say it's gangbusters, but that sounds so masculine, uh, you know, so I don't know, it's like a tubes buster. Or something <laughs> like <that. laughs> it's super, it's, it's, it's really, really great. And then I also think there's this fascinating design show at LACMA called Found in Translation, in which the curator Wendy Kaplan has looked at the, at the intersections of design in 20th century between Mexico and California. And so these sort of shared interests in architecture and indigenous identity and, and the Spanish identity and, and sort of the idea of Mexico and how that was portrayed. And they just, she has just pulled some absolutely insane objects, including this 19th century piano that has been entirely carved with Zapotec indigenous designs it is like i'm just like where did you find this it's the most insane thing i've ever seen so there's a million other shows i could rattle off but i think those are sort of two that are top of my list right now awesome well that sounds great also actually one final thing before you do go uh yes could you explain what 
Pacific Standard Time is to oh, our listeners sure. who yeah, might explain, not explain me. know the concept? <laughs> Pacific Standard Time is a project that was first launched by the Getty about a, uh, more than a decade ago. And the Getty Foundation began to supply grants to Southern California institutions to do a series of exhibitions about art in California post, post-war. So sort of looking at post-war art in California. And the idea was so that small institutions, large institutions alike, would have the necessary funds and time to do really methodical, scholarly research shows that could, in, in a serious way, catalog the art history and design history of California. So the first series of shows they did were all about California, and that was in 2010. And then this is a, a reiteration of that project, except it's all Latin American and Latino art. So something like like 80 plus exhibitions and events in the Southern California area, all looking at Latino and Latin American art uh, all over the continent. Art by women, design, colonial art, uh, pre-Columbian art, uh, protest art, political art, like you name it, it is somehow featured in the series. And how long is, uh, how long does it run through? The the museums all have individual run dates on mm-hmm. their shows, so some started opening as early as the summer. Uh, probably a lot of the exhibitions will wrap up in January. So I would recommend that if you're thinking of coming to L.A., do it soon. There's some great stuff on, and you're probably not going to see it in New York, and it's going to be a damn shame. Thanks so much for coming, yeah, up, thank you. coming out on the show. It was really and great to talk to you. thank you for having me. And I'm sorry we didn't get to use the word turd as a metaphor, because after listening <laughs> to your first show... I was really excited to say turd, and then I didn't get to, so... I think we'll work it in somehow. Okay, if it's not, yeah, the gentrification turd. Yeah, the... (laughs) I think that's a nice sample that we can just... Is art a turd floating in Boyle Copy and paste in there. Yeah, yeah, the turd of gentrification floating floating in the pond of urbanism. <laughs> oh, we're going. Thank downhill. you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me, you guys.